As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm John Weeks and this is The Leader. Crisis talks have taken place between the Prime Minister, Chancellor and the Office for Budget Responsibility as concerns continue to grow about the economy. The talks, which reportedly lasted less than an hour, come after a week of criticism of the mini-budgets created by Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng which has been followed by a sharp drop in the pound and investors selling off government bonds. Despite calls for the budget plans to be reversed, the PM has doubled down on her tax-cutting policies, again pushing the rhetoric that rapid growth is needed to pull the country away from recession. But economic experts and some Tory MPs have criticised the dichotomy between the tax cuts and the Bank of England's decision to hike interest rates saying the two economic actions don't work together. The OBR's public statement about the meeting today included very little detail, but did reveal that it would share an economic forecast with the Chancellor a week today, which will be based on the independent judgment about economic and fiscal prospects and the impact of the government's policies. So what can we expect from this upcoming forecast? And might the Prime Minister consider changing her plans following these talks? Joining me now is the Evening Standards economic expert, Stephen King. So, Stephen, first of all, what was the purpose of this meeting? I think the purpose of the meeting was for the government to try to re-establish some degree of credibility after the unfortunate events over the course of the last few days. Bear in mind that Kwasi Kwarteng originally didn't want the Office of Budget Responsibility involved in the announcements he made uh, last week. And therefore, the idea of there being a kind of independent assessor of the fiscal implications of what the Chancellor is is up to, you know, it wasn't being made. And I think that made the markets in particular very nervous about what precisely this government was up to. Because if you're in the business of sacking the Treasury's permanent secretary and then ignoring the Office of Budget Responsibility, 
it looks like the normal sort of institutional checks and balances you expect to be operating at the heart of government were not being allowed to operate. And it's been described as a highly unusual move for the PM to join the Chancellor for this kind of meeting. Why is that? Is it not a normal thing to happen? It's not a normal thing to happen. The OBR was originally created by George Osborne, and the idea was that the Chancellor of the Exchequer would open himself or herself to to scrutiny from an independent body that would assess whether the fiscal plans of the Chancellor were sort of coherent and sustainable and credible over the medium term. There had been a sort of constant problem with successive chancellors that, you know, whenever life became difficult, they would change the fiscal rules to allow them to get away with some tax cuts or some spending increases or whatever. And so Osborne wanted to say, well, look, regardless of what we think is happening, if we have a separate, credible, independent institution that isn't in the business of fiddling the forecast, then we can actually be more confident that the fiscal plans themselves are plans that the markets will trust and that people can understand. So having created this institution uh, and then to then choose to ignore it, uh, it was almost as if the, the, the Chancellor was suggesting that he was hiding some aspect of what he was hoping to achieve, which was, I think, not a good sign. And it's reported the talks lasted less than an hour earlier today. Is that a good or a bad sign? <laughs> I've got no idea, actually. I suspect it's a reflection of what's in people's diaries more than anything else. But at the same time, I would hope that the OBR made clear that it has certain specific responsibilities and that, um, you know, unless the government wanted to abolish the OBR, then actually those responsibilities were important and had to be respected. Now, the fact that uh, this agreement has come through with a timetable associated with it would suggest that the government perhaps belatedly is now respecting the institution of the ABR. And that means that there will be greater scrutiny in terms of the government's policies than appeared to be the case a week ago. And we have had a statement from the OBR following this meeting, which appears to be quite light on detail. Is that what we were expecting? Well, we know that they have prepared some numbers. And obviously, those numbers are not going to see the light of day. But I think this is a kind of almost like a rescue operation in terms of credibility more than anything else. And what we now know is that there'll be a first draft of the forecast presented to the Chancellor on the 7th of October, so uh, basically the end of of next week. It's not clear that that forecast or that first draft will be published, but this all leads up to the release of the Chancellor's medium-term fiscal plan on the 23rd of November. Now, it may well be that um, the first draft from the OBR is sufficiently painful in terms of uh, longer-term fiscal sustainability to force a a rethink on behalf of the Chancellor and the Prime Minister in terms of how they're going to fund the tax cuts that have already been announced. Now, one possibility, of course, is that they could choose to reverse those tax cuts, but the signals so far have been absolutely clear that they're not going to do that. But if you're doing tax cuts and you've got a shortage of revenue, you're determined to reduce the tax take within the economy, well, there's only two ways of funding that. The first is to increase your borrowing, which, of course, is the sort of thing that the OBR doesn't like very much. Or alternatively, you have to sort of cut your cloth so it fits. And that would imply that anything you're doing in terms of lowering taxes would have to be associated with lowering public spending one way or another. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is leading one way or another to a new dialogue about austerity, because if you can't otherwise cope with the tax cuts, then it's going to be public spending cuts of one kind or another, which are going to become a dominant part of the message later on this year, I suspect. 
Let's take a break now. Coming up in part two, Stephen tells us if there's anyone who's optimistic about the Prime Minister's economic strategy. The funny thing is that even those who I think were the biggest cheerleaders of the new government's policies have kind of gone into reverse gear over the last few days. So, Stephen, as you mentioned, we know this forecast will be sent to the Chancellor a week today. Do you think in the meantime we'll get any form of announcement from the Prime Minister about how these talks have gone? Well, it could happen, but I suspect now it's it's a case of establishing a process that wasn't there previously. So I'm not sure you need to have daily or hourly commentary on this. It's more a case of saying, look, we are committed to supporting this institution. It's an important institution and we will open ourselves to scrutiny. That message wasn't there a week ago. It is there now, which I think is belatedly a good thing. But it's a shame it wasn't done previously. And this sort of dichotomy between fiscal policies to cut taxes and the Bank of England upping interest rates, a lot of people say the two together don't work. Do you think that there's any chance Liz Truss could, instead of U-turning on the mini-budget, actually make amendments perhaps or delay the plans as a result of this meeting? Well, it's possible that they could make amendments here and there. It would be better in many ways if there was a perhaps a clearer dialogue between the bank and the treasury. But perhaps most importantly, that the, the bank should be in a position to be able to say that you know if there's a, a fiscal decision made that is ultimately inflationary, that, that there are consequences associated with this. There's a sort of weird sort of technical discussion that takes place amongst economists about so-called fiscal dominance or monetary dominance. And what that basically means is either that the fiscal authorities, i.e. the Treasury, uh, decide what they do and the central bank, the monetary authority, accommodates that and simply goes along with what the fiscal authorities want to do, which tends to lead to inflation. Um, Or instead, the fiscal authorities present their plans, but the monetary authority, the central bank, makes it abundantly clear that there will be monetary consequences. In other words, that interest rates will have to be higher. I, I think the mistake in one sense that was made was to try to advertise these tax cuts as being what economists call supply-side reforms. In other words, they're designed to improve the long-term potential of the economy, when in actual fact, in the short run at least, they're going to act to stimulate demand just at the point when inflation already is very high. And under those circumstances, no real escaping from the conclusion that interest rates will have to be higher unless the tax cuts are offset by significant spending austerity. And that's the other way of squaring the circle. Say, rather than having significantly higher interest rates, we'll have significantly bigger public spending cutbacks. And it does look like the majority of economists and politicians are quite concerned about the current situation. Are there any that are optimistic about this risky strategy to prioritise growth? (laughs) The funny thing is that even those who I think were the biggest cheerleaders of the new government's policies have kind of gone into reverse gear over the last few days as as, as things have unwound in a rather um, unpleasant and unattractive way. The, the bottom line is that there is very, very little evidence that you can transform an economy to the scale and degree that the current government is promising in terms of shifting from a, a growth rate over the last 15 years of just a little over 1% per year to the 2.5% target they now have. And although, you know, one likes to be optimistic about these things from time to time, the reality is that getting to that kind of growth rate is going to be incredibly difficult and the inflationary risks associated with it are really very high. 
So I, I think that the messaging itself has been not helpful in the sense that you're trying to go for a much higher growth rate while at the same time pretending that there are no inflation risks. That's something which I think has not gone down very well and which has also led, in fact, to comparisons with the budgets in the early 1970s where they did roughly the same sort of thing, you know, trying to boost the economy through tax cuts and ending up with a whole heap of inflation instead. There's more news, interviews and analysis in the Evening Standard newspaper and at standard.co.uk. That's The Leader. Thanks for listening. We're back on Monday afternoon at four o'clock.